Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. You are listening to the D.C. Public Library's All Things Creative on Full Service Radio from the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., this is Casey Danielson, your host. I'm joined in the studio by my coworkers Olabumi Bakari and William Reed. We are all employees of the DC Public Library Studio Lab, and we are talking today about documentary film. I thought it sort of an interesting time to talk about truth versus fiction with news and um, Stephen Colbert's word is truthiness. Um, so. I think it's an interesting time to talk about that stuff. Um, All of us are interested in documentary films. Uh, Will, Boomi, and I have all worked on documentaries. Um, So I guess it's worth talking a little bit about the background of what documentaries are. Um, I think you could say, unlike narrative films, um, documentaries are meant to be nonfiction. They're often laced with the filmmakers uh, interpretations of the facts so you can't really separate those things um, and the personal opinions of of the filmmakers so not just the facts even though it's fact based so um, you have the factual elements but you know they're arranged to lead the viewer uh, basically to as close to the filmmaker's personal conclusion as they can get without being super manipulative. And, and so I was thinking, is this the same thing as dishonesty uh, as a filmmaker making a nonfiction film? When does it become dishonest? And I'm thinking, I couldn't help but think of Michael Moore. Just, I like Michael Moore. I like his films. I like that he pushes, uh, that he pushes back. Um, and I, but I also think that he's, a lot of times using facts, using serious topics to just jump on a soapbox and talk about his opinions. Um, but to some degree, I think, and Will and I were talking about this earlier, to some degree, everybody, all filmmakers, all documentary filmmakers do this uh, to some extent anyway. So I, I chose three different filmmakers, three different films, very different approaches, I think, but all definitely documentaries um so the three films i chose uh the first one is gray gardens by the mazels brothers uh, i chose Co- kurt and courtney by nicholas broomfield uh and the civil war by ken burns but really it could be anything by ken burns um and we'll get to that in a sec um thinking about these things i was just scribbling down uh, if i had t- to explain this to someone who didn't understand film, didn't, hadn't made films or uh, hadn't really studied how, f- how documentary film storytelling um, works. If I were going to turn it into like a music metaphor, I was thinking Greg Gardens could be considered jazz. Uh, Kurt and Courtney could be punk, sort of. Uh, and the Civil War and Ken Burns in general, I think, is pretty much like classical um, I think Boomy loves Ken Burns, so you'll probably chime <laughs> in a little bit. But I think all of his 
films seem to be uh, perfectly formatted to fit together and somehow not really seem carved up and, and composed together. And I'm not sure how he does that so well, but um, he's sort of writing a history book and making it interesting, um, which I think is very, very difficult. He traces certain people's stories, certain characters, which are real through the Civil War. For, you know, for instance, people who, uh, you know, a farmer, what he did before, during and after. And, and uh, that's why you actually care about his stories. Other than that, as a little kid, I remember thinking that it was extremely boring. And then once I felt like I could understand, oh, he's talking about real people mm-hmm. and I'm a real person. Once I was old enough to relate to any of those characters, then all of a sudden it sort of just came alive. So um, the other two, I would say um, the Maisel's Brothers film and uh, Nick Broomfield's film, they're considered direct cinema. And I think the Maisel's Brothers were some of the first ones to sort of create this direct cinema uh, approach with salesmen. They did salesmen before they did Grey Gardens. Um, Did you, did you see salesmen? I've seen clips of it, but uh, not the full thing. Okay. I mean, essentially what that style is, is just pushing into a a real world that's actually alive and actually still. uh, It's more like observation. Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a lot more interesting to me, at least. Yeah, I, and I think you tend more, you know, to have that sort of style of of uh, you know that it's a movie when you're looking at it. You know, uh, the people who are being filmed know that it's a movie and they treat it like they're in a movie. So it is kind of strange right. compared to something that's more composed and classical, uh, in you know, in that sense. Um, so there's this book that I really like called Documentary Storytelling. And uh, the author, Sheila Curran-Bernard, had an interesting, just a little breakdown of what documentaries are. And I'm not sure uh, if you guys will completely agree with this, but here's what she says. She says, Documentaries bring viewers into the worlds and experiences through the presentation of factual information and real people, places, and events generally but not always portrayed through the use of actual images and artifacts but factuality alone does not define documentary films it's what the filmmaker does with those factual elements weaving them into an overall narrative that strives to be as compelling as it is truthful and is often greater than the sum of its parts so that's sort of what we're talking about with leading the viewer into certain lines of thinking um, and I think they reveal something unusual to me. Most of, t- most of the ones I watch bring me to a place or a time or whatever that I would never otherwise see. Um, so one of the examples, I, I, I sidetracked it from those three films um, because as I was writing this, I was thinking the Vice documentary, so they're, before Vice got really big, um, and they had Vice News and all that kind of stuff. They had some smaller documentaries, and most of them were, you know, 17 minutes, 19 minutes. And I really got obsessed with that format, that short format documentary. Mm-hmm. 
there was one, um, the one that really hooked me was the one about this guy who thought he was Jesus and he lived in Siberia and had seen that. Yeah. He had these followers who would go during the summer Mm -hmm. and they would go thousands of miles just to see this guy walk out of the woods. Mm -hmm. and, And it was such a bizarre thing. And I'm pretty sure that it was just the cameraman and the sound guy. So, I mean, and Will was talking about this. Nobody could afford to send an entire huge crew. Yeah, it'd be totally unheard of go, going to some place far from an airport, you know, trying to figure out how are you going to house, transport, and feed all of these people. Um, you could only really reasonably do a film like this the way Vice did it. Mm-hmm. And um, for some reason, I've watched it like a million times. Mm-hmm. And because it's one of those, um, I mean, you could only really get that with a really small crew. We were also saying, you know, if you had a big crew that's intimidating to the subject, that gives you less access. If you have a pretty small camera, um, then you can get to a remote area, aside from the whole crew and all that kind of stuff. Um, but these are places that none of us would ever get to see. I'm never planning on going there, but this is this is something interesting. So um, let's jump into the first one of these, which is uh, Grey Gardens, which Boomi told me earlier today was very depressing. Um, and it is, it is d- depressing if you, I mean, because of what it's about, because of not the way that this, the film actually is structured, but... Well, yeah, I mean, in their reality, maybe it wasn't. But me just looking at it and observing it and seeing that there was some sort of mental illness or some type of imbalance, you know, between the both of them Mm -hmm. and living in the conditions that they were living in. That to me was kind of Let me give a background on what what we're talking about. um, So the Maisel's brothers were... You know, they, they were the filmmakers who made Salesman, and um, they were hired by a, a wealthy uh, Hampton, uh, fa- you know, a, a, I guess I sort of a, a, Lee, a benefactor. Lee Rad, Raz, Raswell? Yeah. She yeah. was the sister of Jackie Kennedy. Right. And originally... The younger sister, right, right. The younger sister, and she hired them to do a documentary about her. About her, right. And she took them to meet these women the Beals, yeah and then sh- they were like well we want to do a story about these women they right. are exciting and fascinating and she had actually already given them money and they had shot some things or whatever and she withdrew the money and mm-hmm. she also took back the negatives and they were like well well we're gonna go with it that is so awkward and <laughs> shoot this so they did this all on their own but so it's I- interesting also that it's Jackie O's younger sister, and it ends up being the the Beals who are sort the, of not the mother even very is distant. the aunt of yeah, right. Jackie Kennedy, right? And and the sister uh, Lee. So, so the two main subjects in Grey Gardens is a mother and a daughter. The mother is Big Edie, and mm-hmm. the daughter is Little Edie. Mm-hmm. And Big Edie is the aunt of Jackie O. Mm-hmm. Is that true? That's true. It, it gets a little confusing. And um, so that would make little Edie the cousin right. <laughs> of yeah. Jackie O. So um, 
these guys go in there and it's they have 16 millimeter cameras which i mean they're they're set up you do get to see their setup in the mirror when they're shooting and mm-hmm. stuff like that and it's really pretty stripped down um, and then there's some some points where a uh, little Edie is talking to one of them she calls his name all the time right she that's part of how how this film and the the interesting part of this film is uh you know the Maisel's brothers befriended these women and these women are messed up they've been living in these terrible conditions in this old family house that is decrepit they're sharing with raccoons and and do you think that they befriended them or that this was something that they saw they could uh get some attention from i don't know were they opportunists or were they genuinely interested in these folks and they were trying to help them you're saying are the mazels brothers brothers i think they well i think they were probably opportunists in the sense that they were like you know, they they recognized how strange the whole thing was and that they, as filmmakers, would have to, you know, manipulate that somehow to get an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the deeper they got into it and the more they started filming, they realized that they had something awesome. And this film actually... Um, so in 2014, Sight and Sound poll, uh, critics voted Grey Gardens as the ninth best documentary film of all time, tying with... This was unbelievable. Tying with uh, D.A. Pennybaker's uh, Bob Dylan proto-rockumentary, uh, Don't Look Back, which is 1967, which is... An amazing Insanely film. awesome. Yeah. And, it, and it, in a way, it also brings people into, you know, in that direct cinema. I never thought about that, but it, uh, it's sort of similar. Um, so there are folks, they have a fan club. Grey Gardens has a fan club on Facebook. <laughs> A couple of pages. I'm sure. And it's probably mostly filmmakers. And they're crazy. (laughs) Um, So we have an audio clip of uh, Little Edie talking directly to the filmmakers. And this sort of gives you an idea of how the flow of this movie goes and how it's sort of haphazard. But it ends up um, being really an interesting way of telling the story. The Maisel. Hi, Edie. The gentleman callers. I saw your car. One of my, one of my cats just Edie, got you look down. fantastic. David, you look absolutely terrific. Honestly, you got like you've got like blue on. Well, Al, you're still. Uh, Mother says you're very conservative. <laughs> <laughs> Brooks, everything looks wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. This is the best thing to wear for the day. You understand? Yeah. Because I don't like women in skirts. And the best thing is to wear pantyhose or some pants under a short skirt, I think. Then you have the pants under the skirt. And then you can pull the stockings up over the pants underneath the skirt. Mm-hmm. And you can always take off the skirt and use it as a cape. So I think this is the best costume for the day. Okay. <laughs> So it's pretty strange, and she can she continues to talk a little bit about. Um, so, would you like to go photograph up from the roof? Would you like to go up on the upper deck and photograph down? So she's describing. I mean, I don't know how aware either of them are, even that their reality is weird. Um, I, I know that the nearby community <laughs> and Jackie O mm-hmm. paid to have their place cleaned up um, before before it would be 
uh, foreclosed on or, or I, I before think they would it get was, kicked out? Yeah, so yeah, the health department had visited once, and um, I think during the either after uh, Jack Kennedy's John F. Kennedy's election or around the time after he got elected, um, you know, people were really focusing in on the family. And that's when she hired someone to clean up the place. Yeah. So um, so they must have been aware of it, but they sit there and they talk about there's a big hole in the wall. And I think that's where the cats got out. And that, you know, that's also where the raccoons get in. Cats and, get in. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think she said the raccoon, she accused the raccoon <laughs> of creating the hole <laughs> when they were just being natural. Yeah. So it, there were ra- there were other I'm probably sure there were other creatures that got in that house that we you know that the filmmakers just didn't capture. Well, something that wasn't in the film, I remember um, when they cleaned up the house and they cleaned up one of the rooms that had uh, like an entire wall totally full of old cat food cans and nasty old moldy stuff. And they found dead cats bodies underneath this stuff. Mm. So that's how nasty and also how big of a house this was. It was a big enough house where you could just, yeah. See, that's yeah. me right there. That's, uh-huh. That that's, is so disturbing. Yeah, yeah. It, exactly. Wait, Boomy, are is. you saying you wouldn't want to be part of the film crew that went in and shot Heck this? No, not only would I, there were scenes when they were eating and they were offering the filmmakers some food <laughs> I, I would like, definitely was, go and film, but I just wouldn't want to live that way. I probably probably wouldn't even go in the house. Like, no, you're a germaphobe. Yeah. It's not being a germaphobe. It was just I don't. You don't know what's going to come out the walls. You don't know. And then she was saying something about fleas. Like there are fleas in the house, yeah. and this wasn't like. I bet you there's worse than that. Yeah, the, the shot at the very end of the film, you can see like um, Big Edie was on the bed a lot in this film. Yeah. You know, she's older, late 80s, I think, um, probably somewhat bedridden. But there were cats all over the bed. She ate in the bed. She cooked in the bed. And then there were like stains on the side of oh, the yeah. mattress. I was like, you didn't see that, mm. you know, during the film. They only showed that it was that one part in the end. And it was like, that is disgusting. Yeah. But it, so, I, you know, and we, we should jump to the next movie. But one th- more thing about that. And I'm thinking, how does a movie that's that dark become also the ninth, ninth place of best documentaries of all time? You, you shock. Would, shock. You think that's what it is? The the fact that they come from okay, so Jackie Kennedy for right. one. So she's, that's big. You know your your connection to the president of right. the United States. That's the hook, right? And then you come from wealth. Mm-hmm. Your neighbors are wealthy. Yeah. Bouvier then, was in their name, right? Bouvier is yeah. in their name, and then you look at the way that they are living. You know, the clothing that. Uh, Little Edie War may have been expensive. At one you know, point. Yeah, at one point. And then she starts altering it herself by like cutting slits in it and wrapping it up. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, they're eccentric. It's just, it's the contrast. I think that's what's interesting about this. It's, it's that, you know, you could see a, a, like hoarders or something like mm-hmm. that. You would see that there. Right. But then to know that these people are, you know, they come from wealth. They right. went to these, um, little Edie went to like a prestigious school. Sure. She wanted to be a writer and she had opportunities, but 
something went wrong. Yes, yeah, something went wrong. And, and that's and, what and I the think, film is about, yeah, that's, is what went wrong. Exactly. And that, you never learn the, the answer, though. Right. But that's part of why it's interesting. And that sort of segues into but just, just one to more shout, thing. One more thing. Yeah, shout it out. DC Public Library, dclibrary.org. You can mm-hmm. actually watch the film. Oh, that's right, yeah. Criterion Collection. Is that where you, where you watched it? Yes, oh, cool. through our database. That's awesome. Crystal clear on your computer. Yeah, the, cri- the Criterion Collection is awesome. You could spend yeah. all day there. Um, but so, so you're saying um, part of the, the difficulty or part of the conflict in Grey Gardens is that you don't really ever learn the answer of why things went the way they did. And... Kurt and Courtney, which is a very, very different movie that was done, you know, 20 years later. So 1998 uh, is basically. Yeah. Did the film? Mm-hmm. It looks older. Yeah. Cause yeah it, does, be, it does look older because all the all the versions you can find online are really degraded. But part of what I like about the film anyway is that it looks sloppy and bumpy and crappy and lo-fi. And um, I don't think it looks intentionally lo-fi, but I think, you know, he had some funding and then because of all the so, so it's about Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love and how he was trying to imply that Courtney had something to do with his death or had him killed or whatever and the, the whole interesting part of that movie gets a little bit diluted because he kind of splits off into part part of the movies about she had him killed part of the movies about uh talking negative about her because she brought lawsuits against uh, the filmmaker so he couldn't use any of the music that he wanted to use. So the film itself, um, I mean, it's discouraging because if he had been able to do whatever he wanted, it would have been a different film. Um, So, and and then, so you talked about truthiness, right? So truth is subjective. So, this was not an observation. Obviously, the point, well, not obviously, but looking at it, you would think that the filmmaker's perspective is she's guilty. Courtney is guilty. Right. She has something to do with his death. So, and that's what I'm trying to get you to see. Right. You know, so. But he brings in a whole bunch of unreliable, shady characters. Mm-hmm. Even her, even Courtney's, did you, if, did you see any dad, of her father? I, yeah. That yeah, she pulling out journals that she wrote when she was a teenager, and and he's calling her out for you know she she I think she had sex really early and she was probably getting people to pay for sex and he's just so I mean it's the common thread between both films is this imbalance some, and crazy somewhere. dysfunction yeah and and I and I think um, and he was Hank Harrison I remember because he's just such a scumbag and so you you don't know. Which scumbags to believe in this movie, um, and I think even well, the we film- know your point of view. No, no, because even I think even the filmmaker comes across as a, kind of a scumbag. Be, he has a style of ambushing mm-hmm. uh, the people that he's that he's interviewing, and he just turns his camera on. and And I know Will loves. Well, I mean, it's complicated, right? Like, so so this film, I think. I, I don't really like his ethics and that sort of thing, but 
you know, it, it is very cool um, the way that it's shot, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that you can see the filmmaker in the film. Um, you acknowledge that it is a film. And in that respect, it makes it easier for us as viewers to to think about the the truthiness of this film because we're constantly being reminded that it's a film. We're constantly aware that this filmmaker is kind of out there and in the way he's shooting it. Whereas if you go to somebody like Ken Burns where it's super clean and you don't, you're not really aware of him as a filmmaker, you're not really thinking about his biases and his agenda or whatever. They, if they're there, they're way down deep Yeah, and you never really get to see. Um, so I, I have some audio of one of the scumbags from uh, Kurt and Courtney. So interesting. Um, so this is Nick goes to somebody's like divine brown's pimp brings uh the the little crew over to this guy's house this guy named el duce who is in this or was in this really terrible band um called the mentors which were just like this crazy sex rock band um but uh he went there for a reason to try to get him on tape to uh, say a certain thing so if we could maybe listen to that real quick Side with Divine Brown's pimp, a close personal friend of Al Duce's, who said he could put us in touch. Let me give it. Okay. Back, Vixen. Back. Is that? Looks like him right there, actually. That is. That. That's the one. There he is, Al Duce. Yeah. There he is right there. So he's, uh, hey, I got some Courtney Love there. There he is. This is him, El Duce. This is the. Tell you, he's. Where's the booze? Sure, the dog won't get out and attack us here? This is. A perverted. He's just a perverted. Yep, a warped, uh. (laughs) Intoxicated. Most of the time. So, and, but you, uh, you did some deal with Courtney, right? Yeah. Well, she offered me fifty grand to whack Kurt Cobain. Yeah, I was telling you. She what? Fifty grand to whack Kurt Cobain. And that's that. That's a fact, is it? <laughs> but uh, people might think you're not the most reliable witness. Well, that's too bad. You may not be the reliable witness your own self. <laughs> now think about that one. <laughs> so that's El Duce. Something interesting about uh, El Duce was two weeks after that was shot, El Duce was killed by a train. So he was run over by a train. And Broomfield sticks that in there as part of the film. And I think that's, you know, it just just to shake it up a little bit and to make it seem like, oh, okay, Courtney, maybe she had him killed. Maybe everyone had everybody killed. <laughs> it spins everything on its head. So it's right. like, so it loses its potency, I think. Um, even though I like the film and I continue to watch it, um, just because you do get to see these people who spent the last days with Kurt Cobain and somebody knows what happened. And I think... Um, Again, this was another somewhat sad film mm-hmm. 
you know, I I didn't know too much about Kurt Cobain. I remember uh, "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Is mm-hmm. that a song? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it's a song, a song. Yeah, right? That's a song. <laughs> yeah, like back I was a teenager when he passed. So ninety four. Yeah, ninety four. I, I remember hearing about him. Didn't know too much about him, so I watched this film, and so looking at his background and seeing where he came from was a a place of sadness and then obviously uh courtney love coming from the same place and then they got together um beyond that he's just trying to the the filmmaker is trying to you know put everything on her but you know you really don't know it looks like it but you really don't know what happened and so truthiness Mm -hmm. we don't know the truth it's just the filmmaker's perspective so i guess you don't know what he's going for except for to kind of spin it to make it look like she's the the killer per se well she had something to do with his death well and i think he so the other part of truthiness to this film is i think he does a decent job at convincing us we don't know what the truth really is so i think the truth is that cobain killed himself i think that most of the situation points to he killed himself but part of what this film is doing is to trying to convince the viewer well maybe that didn't really happen the way you think it did and and if i present enough evidence that shows that pokes holes in that now you don't know what's true at all and that's unfortunately sort of what happens in the news um you you do know what the facts are until you're told 10 times in a row that those aren't the facts and then you're thinking well damn you know maybe i'm wrong and that's all the you know a lot i mean unfortunately when you're talking about manipulating the truth and the news but also in some of these films um and i think again michael moore is has a problem with this that um if you stick in enough anomalies in there then it becomes very hard to tell what's real and with someone like Ken Burns, you know, I, I just watched The West, Ken Burns' The West. So, and I think we can talk about Ken Burns' stuff uh, as one big, basically little chapters in a big book that's the book of Ken Burns. And it's formatted the same way. There's, you know, tons and tons of research, uh, really good uh, overdubs, uh, excuse me, like voiceover and uh, well written, well scripted lots of interesting photographs and um it fits together so perfectly and i never really question whether what he's saying is true because of the way it's presented you have to assume you know well this is a history book so he can't lie about this it would be way too easy to prove any of these facts wrong um but maybe fact isn't really what burns is trying to do what do you think I think he's going after the truth. His thing is the truth. He's obviously, you know, they call he's on the left. He's very liberal or whatever. But what I like about him is he tries to he he's presenting balance. You know, Civil War, for instance, he had he's he spread it around as far as uh folks who were uh knowledgeable how do i say it um experts there you go experts (laughs) can't think shelby foot for instance Mm -hmm. civil war historian not going to say he's uh conservative but maybe he 
you know, he was. I don't know too much about him, but I think he was very conservative to have him. And then you contrast him with all the others that um, spoke about the Civil War. He wanted he presented both sides in a balanced way. He told it, you know, Confederate side, Union side. Um, so that's what I, I, I appreciate about him. And either way, same thing with Vietnam that just aired. He had um, did you soldiers watch, in the U.S. Did you watch it? I watched I Vietnam. I watched the whole thing. I didn't watch the whole thing. Oh so I need God. to finish watching it. Um, but so then he had folks, the Viet Cong, mm-hmm. you know, former soldiers telling, telling it from their side. So you can, get, you can get a clearer picture of how both sides saw things. You know, and also I think in, in the West, which overlaps with the Civil War and all this stuff overlaps with everything else because it has to do with the United States government and how the United States government acted with people who were innocent and people who were guilty. But I think, um, so when he splits it up into Confederate and Union, when he splits it up into uh, Amer- you know, the, the, the Viet Cong and the S- South Vietnamese Army and the United States, I think he's trying to show that there really aren't sides, mm-hmm. um, that we can say that there are different color uniforms and there are different, um, you know, I mean, clearly they're fighting each other. So it's not it's not that there aren't sides in a literal sense, but like he traces human beings through these things. And I think that's what makes it especially in Vietnam, because he has he, he got footage uh, from the north that was shot on really bad equipment and stuff. But it was, you know, shots of the same offensive from the Viet Cong side. Mm-hmm. You see, you see that, you know, you see the soldiers and it's like, wait a second, these guys are all in shorts and flip flops mm-hmm. with no helmets. Right. These are the Viet Cong. Right. We're used to seeing it in such a different way. Right. Yeah. Did you, have you seen, I, I haven't seen that, but I'm, I know you're not the hugest fan of Ken Burns, but I <laughs> no, think, no, I'm, I'm not, I don't think he's a, obviously he's a, a great filmmaker. I'm just, I'm not as interested in that style of documentary. But it is very interesting to think about, you know, perspective, right? You know, you're right. We do typically, we're used to seeing, you know, the the war documentaries from the Allied perspective or the American perspective. Um, you know, that, that footage, that scene that you're describing, I can picture it in my mind. I, I'd love to, to see that. That's it's. So, so let's say this also. Ken Burns always says that he's a historian. First and foremost, he's a historian. He loves history. So his film his films are always going to be heavy with, you know, both sides. He's going to look at it in a in a balanced way. He's he loves history. He wants to hear both sides of the story. In context. His right. Historical context, yeah. That's one th- one thing. But another thing, I I was I rewatched the Civil War and I was thinking today which side will folks be on? Would you be on, would you be pro-union, meaning pro-federal government, or would you be a rebel, meaning states' rights, you know, what you believe in? How, how would the country fall today if, if it came down to it? Yeah, and that's, I think, the biggest success of that series is that you don't really know you ha- you you can't help but agree with both sides on certain things mm-hmm. right. so you know the idea that um 
it's a it's a very clear distinction. Here's the line. Slavery's on the below this line. No slavery's above it. Uh, freedom is on top. No freedom is below. It's a really stupid dualistic way to think about that stuff. And I think that the most intelligent filmmakers and or or historians or whatever. I mean, I think Ken Burns at this point is sort of like an industry. So the Ken Burns industry, mm-hmm. he has a brand that, you know, he has an effect. He has an effect. Mm-hmm. He has the Ken Burns effect, right. um, uh, which if you don't know what we're talking about, if you, if you open iMovie on, on a Mac and you start making your very first film and you put a photo in it and it automatically creates the Ken Burns effect, which zooms slowly in to where it thinks you want the photo to go. And L- little plug here. Yeah. If you don't know what you're talking mm-hmm. about and you want to use the Ken Burns effect in iMovie <laughs> to make your movie, that's when you could come to the studio lab at the Shepherd Park Library and we could show you how that works. Yeah, and... I think a lot of people don't know that you can have access to all this stuff. Um, we have tons of people coming every week, two days a week, uh, and it's been filling up. We have a couple kids who come in and are working on this. Yeah, films. if a kid can do it, so can you, yeah. you know? Well, and the kids are, I feel like they're smarter than us a lot of times. Uh, sometimes, yeah. often. <laughs> yeah, and they learn it really fast. Um, so... And that's Mondays and Thursdays at one to five at Shepherd Park, and and there are some Studio Lab programs also going on at Shaw. Um, what's going on there? Do you guys you you have just, just access, access to the Creative to the Cloud, Adobe Creative Suite? Okay, um, by appointment only. Yeah, so people can come and cut videos and do. I we do some uh, Photoshop and. Uh, a lot. There's been a lot more people doing film-related stuff, which is yeah. Really that cool. that group has been growing. Yeah. Um. So, I think maybe we should wrap it up. Um. I want to think back on all these movies, and and I know that we kind of crapped on Kurt and Courtney for, you know, just the the truthiness and the problems in that movie. Well, but let, I would say, let me say this though. Like I believe we're all artists Mm -hmm. you know everybody is painting the picture the way that they see it you know that's just how it is so i don't think we were crapping on it we were just looking at it from our own points of view well i was it's just i mean (laughs) well yeah that's the truth (laughs) no but i like the the things that i was critiquing and and calling you know, jumpy or crappy and gritty and didn't sound good and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's also kind of the stuff that I like about that. Um, and I was going to have us, um, I don't know if we have time. Let's see. Um, I guess we have a couple minutes. Um, so one of the things about Kurt and Courtney that, that I was crapping on it about, um, the sloppiness and, you know, the sound wasn't great. And usually it was the filmmaker with his stupid little headphones and the, and the microphone in front of the cameraman just barreling up to his subject without really asking and just saying, hey, uh, can I talk to you about Kurt Cobain? You know, and, they, and some of the people are surprised and, you know, like, get away from me. We don't know who you are. Um, okay, so in, in that respect right uh-huh. there, when you do approach people in that way, you may elicit the truth because they don't have time to prepare anything in their head. So 
in that way, I could see why he would go for that. But you could also just elicit them running from you, you know. Uh, think of, like, if you tried to take a camera down and tried to catch some politicians, you know, exiting the Capitol, I'm sure they would... I mean, granted, they're probably used to that sort of thing happening to them all the time in a way that these characters weren't. But, but at least to get defensive. Yeah. Like, I think the natural tendency would be either tell the truth and get the person out of there or be defensive and get the person right. out of there. Well, if you're running, that means... You, I would think... These people haven't been too. chased. Right. You know, most of the people who run away from the camera have already, they're like, leave me alone. People have been bugging them. Right. But these people that he approached, they're obviously, ha- they, yeah, they're normal people. They haven't had a camera in their face. Right. Right. So. Um, so, I mean, he's so he's basically doing the sound, uh, at least some of the sound recording himself. Um, I have a thing for sound. I have. A, a background in in audio and mixing and stuff like that um when i've worked on my own film projects it's been very important for me to try to get things as clean as i can without it sounding too clean and i saw a very interesting clip by christopher nolan who is the director who did all the dark knight movies and did inception and interstellar and um i'm probably missing some stuff but his very first movie was f- following um, and it's about it was a, it was a black and white 16 millimeter very gritty uh, film about a guy who follows another guy and becomes a sort of a stalker and um, the story is kind of memento ish and he also did memento so I guess I should have said that um, but he talks about the importance of sound and how you can trick audiences into taking your film seriously by using sound um, and and I don't know. I guess it's being manipulative, but this is a narrative filmmaker, so um, maybe we could listen to a little bit of that. Uh, but I wanted to have the first scene be a very controlled, competently made, you know, piece of, uh, of filmmaking, so that when you see the rest of the film, is all you know, a bolex, not even on the shoulder because you can't put it on the shoulder, but bouncing around and walking around the streets and following people and all of that that it would be clear that that were deliberate, that it would be framed and put in a context where you realize that it wasn't, it wasn't accidental, it was a choice. And those choices could be seen as limitations, but we looked at them. I, I sort of sat down and thought, okay, what are they going to be? Uh, and then wrote the script with those in mind very much. And, and some of them were more esoteric. I mean, I, I just happened to notice that with no budget films, uh, guns don't work very well, you know, because y- you can never get the right replica gun. It's never got the weight to it. You can't fire blanks with it. You can't, you know, and so whenever you'd see that in somebody's student film or whatever, it would always give a... He, it's interesting to talk about it, uh, to listen to a guy like him talk about his first film, because even his first film looks like a Chris, Christopher Nolan film. It's weird. And he talks about... So he's talking there about the sound and how as long as you can get part of it in a very controlled environment that, you know, it opens with uh, an interrogation in a police station. I think it's a police station. Um, and they recorded that in a studio. It's one minute long. And then they cut to the rest of it, as he's saying, you know, that it's bumpy sort of jostling looking in footage, but you're on board because you've been brought into it that way. So it's lo-fi and hi-fi mixed together. And I guess he's using 
what he can and it's he built that stuff into the script to say you know i'm going to put this part first because this is the part that sounds best and then build around that which is kind of an odd way to do it but if you think about it it makes it makes sense if you think that the sound is going to be important enough to get you in the door of that story um and he also talks another thing he talks about in there um if you pay attention you'll notice that most of the interesting interactions between the characters take place near windows and it's because that's where the light is and he stood there with you know either a big white bounce card or a reflector and just had people stand near windows and you know first time i watched that i never noticed that but once you start looking at it you're like ah there's all these corners you can cut there's all these ways that you can fool people and um you know, I don't know whether that's dishonest or whether that's, um, I guess the, the overall theme here is that it's relative dishonesty and truth and all that kind of stuff is relative because let's say, uh, Nolan is making a documentary. I bet he would use those exact same techniques. I bet he would do the same sort of manipulation. Uh, you know, if you want to call it that, um, but it's twisting the truth and uh you know i think that's it's it's worth having those types of tools in your toolkit you know what i mean yeah um it's only truth if we agree that it's the truth it's only false if we agree that it's false that's deep i think you're right i'm gonna have to think about that (laughs) um all right so i think we can wrap it up so um you just listened to the dcpl on full service radio. Uh, this was your host, Casey Danielson. Thanks for listening and keep it creative, Boomy. Thanks for listening to this program on full service radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full service radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on Mixcloud.com slash Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.